we're glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, some guests here over the summer, some familiar faces back with us, and, and then, of course, our, our church family here. Uh, welcome. My name's Justin, one of the pastors here, uh, lead teacher at Peninsula Grace. And if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Psalm 88 today. We've been walking through this series called uh, Summer in Psalms Springs, and, and we're just looking at different categories of the Psalms and how to read them, how to know God uh, through his word. Um, who here uh, loves a good story? Right? You just love, I'm, I'm, I, that I, I, growing up, I love, I'm in, like whether it's reading uh, a book, watching a movie, uh, give me in Narnia, Middle Earth, and especially Under the Sea. <laughs> Darling, it's better. Uh, I, we grew up on, on Disney movies, and even though uh, they are essentially the same thing every single time, I was along for the ride. Right? So it comes on the scene, a heroine or a hero, uh, but quickly something bad happens, right? The huntsman is going to take uh, Snow White into the woods to kill her. Oh no! But then what happens? Of course, it's 10 minutes into the movie. She's fine, right? And so then she runs into some dwarves. She meets Dopey and Sneezy and Gimli and, and whoever else is there. And, and then uh, there's more bad things that could happen, right? The poisoned apple comes from the witch herself and she takes a bite in it. And no, she's, she's dead. And is she dead forever? Is this going to finally be the end of Snow White? Well, of course not, because True love comes, and with a kiss on the lips, she lives, and they ride off into the sunset with the small people waving at her, and, and they live, everybody say it with me, happily ever after, and all the small children delight. But imagine for a moment a children's story with no happily ever after. Imagine for a moment that, that Prince Charming kisses Snow White, and it doesn't work, and Snow White stays dead. And, and, and you just have a bunch of sad dwarves who eventually have to end, go into a recovery program because life's just really kind of gone off the rail. Uh, and it cuts to black. And the kids are just sitting there in horror, sucking their thumbs and, and will have a twitch anytime somebody off, offers them an apple from this time forward in their lives, right? They just live sadly ever after, right? Now, of course, Disney's never taken that route. And there's a reason for that. But in our lives, our realities... Don't, don't we live a life that doesn't always just neatly conclude happily ever after? That's not the reality in this fallen world. We have a loved one that dies that doesn't come back from, with a magical kiss. We have chronic pain that we don't see an ending to. We have relationships that are broken and it doesn't end up riding into the sunset. A light that we cannot see at the end of the tunnel. And... We, I think partly we like these fairy tales because they offer us this warm blanket in a cold and, and, and at times very dark world. This morning we're going to walk through Psalm 88, certainly a psalm that does not end happily ever after. In fact, the final word of the psalm in both the English and Hebrew is darkness. It's darkness. It literally ends in darkness uh, with no hope, no victory, no light at the end of the tunnel, seemingly. And today, we're, we're looking at, we've been looking at these different categories, and we're looking at psalms of lament, and what, it, what, what that looks like in the psalms. We, we see the, the word lament means to feel or express grief or sorrow, to feel or express grief or, or so, sorrow. Now, some of the psalms of lament resolve pretty quickly. Psalm 13, verse 1, it's, where are you, God? And by verse 6, he's saying, I rejoice in you. You are my hope, and I've found you. But, but one of the things we love, and one of the reasons that we chose Psalm 88 for this week, is because it, it, it ends in darkness. And that's not just some sort of weird, sadistic thing that the elders are trying to pull on you. It's because this is part of the human experience, isn't it? 
that, that our moments of lament don't usually uh, and, and immediately resolve. They don't always, they don't just end in a happily ever after. Now, lament isn't a word that we use very often in our language, right? Like, what have you been up to? I've oh, just been lamenting a little bit, right? We don't, we don't really say that. And we certainly also don't really practice it. We, we tend to be a, a people who try to hide our emotions. We might share them on social media. But, but, but real, in real life, face-to-face, we can be ones who, who try to suppress, maybe self-medicate. One of the other things we love to do is try to keep ourselves busy. That if we can just keep the schedule full with sports and family and work, then we can just kind of not slow down enough to feel the pain. That we can kind of pacify ourselves with Netflix. It's hard for me to go to sleep without Netflix. Right? Just kind of confessing that here today. Um, that we, we or, or stuff, eat our feelings with a punch bowl of, of ice cream. Now, one of the things that we, we see is that ignoring it, the problem, ignoring the, the sorrow, doesn't solve anything, does it? That, that we know, if, if you will indulge me, it's like when you have to go potty, all right? So you can distract yourself, you can pretend that you don't need to go potty, but eventually it's going to come out. And neglecting it or, 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 or just ignoring it just means that it will eventually come out and probably at an inappropriate or inconvenient time, Right? <laughs> Oh, buddy. And if you hold on to it long enough, it will develop an an infection. All right? So let's just let Psalm 88 be the coffee. You know what? Let's just stop. Let's not even. (laughs) Let's just end the metaphor there. Right? Let's just bow, move along. Okay, that's the last one, I promise. <laughs> last one, I promise. But the, the Psalms, listen, the Psalms are more than just kind of the, you know, the, the, the kind of armchair psychology talk of just, we've got to let it out, right? We've got we to gotta vent. Or, and if we just kind of through this catharsis, meaning if we just vent our emotions, the process of venting will be the healing in and of itself. And that's not what we're talking about. That's not what the word of God presents for us as hope. The Psalms of lament are not just showing us the importance of expressing our emotions. These are showing us that the most important thing in our lives is to know and understand our God. That for you and I, whether in the sunshine or the rain, the only hope that we're going to find is knowing and understanding and loving and trusting our God. In Psalm 88, the Psalms of Lament want to take us on that path. Now, Pastor Ross shared with us a few weeks ago an approach to how to read the Psalms. And and there's three kind of laps that we're going to take around Psalm 88 this morning. The first one is looking at the original context. What was the author himself trying to express, trying to say? What was going on in his life? The second lap is going to be, how does this point us to Jesus? As all scripture does, how does this point us to Christ? And then finally, we're going to look at our um, response, our application, what this looks like in our own lives so we're going to run lap, three laps around, and, and the first one is the original context, the cry of Haman. So when you're reading Psalms, I don't know if you've ever noticed, there's, there's some little, there's some words, some phrases sometimes before the Psalm, and usually we don't really know what that means, and we just sort of start reading from verse one on, but there can be some really helpful information uh, that's provided there. This one tells us that the author, it's not David, like half the Psalms are, this is actually the sons of Korah. Uh, the, the sons of Korah were, were a, group, a family that came from the tribe of Levi, the priests that helped take people into the throne room of God. And, and one of the ways they would do that is through singing. And it was the sons of Korah that would be, a, they were a lot of times the ones that would pen some of these psalms and, and, and lead the singing of these psalms with the people of Israel. So one way I remember it is the, that Korah's sons are the chorus sons. You see what I did that? It sounds very similar, but they're different words. Okay, I just wanted to, okay. And, and actually, the... Um, 
It kind of reminds me of choir boys. Now, we have a, a, a special person in our uh, church that grew up in, in one of these very contexts. Uh, I won't tell you who. Uh, <laughs> but feel free to, to tease him at the end of the service. Um, as you might see him singing so, so well. A little bit lower in the register now, but he's, but he's doing well. Um, we see this particular, one of, the, one of the Korah's sons that sings this one, that wrote this one, is called Haman. Uh, he was actually one of Korah's sons from Jamaica, right? Haman. How you doing, Mon? Haman the Ezraite, and he, um, Haman penned Psalm 88. It says that uh, it was for the choir master, according to Mahalath Lanoth. Now, what does that mean? Well, that was, that was a Hebrew phrase that essentially meant a song for the troubled. In fact, your version might just translate it something along the lines of a song for the afflicted, a song for the lowly. This is a dirge. It's, it's, a, it's a mourning song, M-O-U-R, mourning. And remember, we said that the psalms are melodies, right? In fact, that's what the word psalm meant. It was a melody. And we said one of the unique things that the psalms do is not just help us think a thought or to feel a feeling, but songs help us feel a thought. And that's what Psalm 88 helps us with, is how to feel these thoughts that we have. And, and a lot of times, I don't know about you, but a sad song, can, when, when I'm down in the dumps, one of the most helpful tools that I can have is a sad song that I can just belt out with. It's a sad, sad situation, right? We can just sing that, and there's a way in which... Now, that sad song, song it doesn't solve our problems, right? It doesn't make the problem go away. It doesn't fix the problem. But what it lets us do is identify those feelings and those thoughts buried deep down sometimes, and it helps us express them in a way that, that really nothing like a song can do. Now, we don't know the melody. Again, we don't have the original actual tunes to these, uh, but we do have the words. And um, I, I want us to read this together. It's Psalm 88. If you, if you can't quite see the words on the screen, you can follow along. I'm, I'm going to be in the ESV uh, just so you know. Uh, but what I'd like to do, if you would stand with me, I want to declare this psalm together. This is a sad psalm. And, and maybe you come in this morning and, and you're, not, you're not in a place of lament. Summer's good, you're having a great time. Maybe that's not where you are. Maybe it is where you are. But one of the beautiful things about gathering together as the people of God is we come together as a family. And we're all in different places, different stages of life, uh, different, different attitudes and spirits this morning, but we come together as one. And it's important that we, that we declare these kinds of songs and truths together, not just always pretending like everything's okay, and only singing happy songs that praise God, for the, but also to express the moments in the pit. And so whether or not this is you, let's come together, whether it's declaring these laments from your own heart or declaring in solidarity with those who are lamenting today or when you will have lamented in the past or will in the future, we want to declare this. So I want us just to note Haman's sadness as we express this psalm to God. So let's read this together. O Lord, God of my salvation... I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. 
You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in... Yeah, I don't know how to say it either. (laughs) Verse 12. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You can have a seat. This is God's word. Now, we don't know a lot of background information on this. We're not given it in the Bible or, or really in extra-biblical sources. We do know a couple things about Haman's experience just from reading the text. A couple I want to pull up in particular. We see that Haman suffered for a long time. I get that from verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. That in an early age, there was some form of affliction. We're not told what kind exactly. Uh, but he's experienced this for a long time. We also see that he was shunned by his family and, and his friends. He says in verse 8, you've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So he's shunned by some of the closest people around him. In the midst of that, we see that he looks to the Lord constantly, continually, regularly for deliverance. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. It's the first thing on my lips is this cry. To my God. If we look at the structure of, of this psalm, uh, we see that uh, a commentary that kind of helped me on this. There's three things. We see a prayer for help right out of the gates. We also see him describe uh, next uh, the experience of what it, like a death-like state in life. He's like, I'm physically alive, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm walking around dead. And then finally, it's the Lord's doing. He attributes these things that are happening to him to the Lord. And then in the back half of the psalm, he just sort of, he sort of mixes that up a little bit. Prayer for the help, then it's the Lord's doing. And then finally, the experience of dying in, in life. And so we want to look at each of these aspects from Haman's point of view. Notice the first thing in his prayer for help. Haman doesn't first clean himself up before he comes to God. Right out of the gates, he just says, Oh God, oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to me. What we see here is Haman does not come to the Lord uh, only after he put, up, put on his spiritual makeup. He, he doesn't come all dressed up. Being married, I've learned the mystery of the female bathroom drawer. There's a lot going on in there. We've got sprays and bottles and things. I'm like, I don't even know what you use all this for, but it's, it's amazing. I got my toothbrush and deodorant. All right, amen? That's all, I, that's all. I don't even get a drawer. Um, but but we, don't see, we don't see Haman going brush, brush, rub, rub, and then come out and go, oh, hey, God, what's up? I just, can't, I just you know, popped out of bed like this. How you doing? What do we see him doing? This is like ugly cry. This is snot bubbles bursting from the nose. <laughs> this poor little guy. I don't know what happened, but he's in the pit with Haman. 
mascara running, hot mess. Haman comes out as he is and just goes, God, I need you. He cries out to his God. I mean, isn't that the first step? We talked last week about petition psalms. That we come recognizing our need. That our life isn't all fixed up. That it isn't perfect. Let's not pretend he already knows what's actually going on in our hearts and our minds anyway. And notice here, the only petition he actually makes, the only request he makes in this psalm is to be heard by his God. And even in the depths of his, his, his anguish, he calls out to God, are you listening? Hear my cry. Would you listen to me? And I love here, the first thing he does is declares who the Lord is. He says, you are the God of my salvation, and I need saving in this moment. It's important for us to de- declare the truth, even when our hearts don't necessarily believe it, when we're not feeling it, to declare what is true of God as revealed by his word and trust that he will form our hearts grasped around that truth that we are declaring. This is back to our talking about confession psalms. The confession means to agree with God, to see it the way he sees it. So that means confessing our own sin, to see it the way God sees it, but it's also to see him the way he sees himself. God, you are who you say you are. You're the God who can save and then you hear the language of death, starting in verse 3. He says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. Haman here is experiencing this death-like state. And remember, the Psalms are poems, they're songs, and so there are times when they are expressing their feelings. This isn't all literal. This is, the, this is Haman's point of view. This is the way that he feels. Not necessarily reality, not necessarily literal, but he feels like God has forgotten him. doesn't mean God has. It means that's how he feels. He feels like he has no strength. He feels like the one who is there to provide for all his needs, that that hand of provision has been cut off. And then if, if you're like me... Starting in verse 10, my, made my eyebrows go up a little bit here. He said, do you work wonders for the dead? Do, do the departed rise up to praise you? Say law. Anybody wondered, what, what does that mean, say law? Right? Why, do they, why do they say law? It's, it's sort of a musical pause from the best they understand. So we kind of use words in our, like we could say, say la 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 la. Like we'll use things kind of in music. And this was just kind of a, a word to put in there that meant it was a, a pause, a break in the, in the action. Then he goes on, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or is your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, what got me scratching my head a little bit on this one is it sounds like, if you read this, that there's no hope for those who have died. Um, That he says, can you raise up the dead? Can you do wonders? Can can you still be faithful and, and good to those who are dead? Now, that seems to run against the very fabric of, of our belief as believers, right? As Christians, Jesus followers, that Jesus rose from the dead. And the whole thing is that there is hope after the grave. That there is life after death. So is Haman contradicting what we read later on in, in Scripture? When, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That there is a day coming when the dead shall rise, right? We believe in the resurrection, so what's going on here? A couple of things to consider. First of all, at this point in history, God has not yet revealed everything to, to Israel or to the known world at that time about the, the coming rescuer and about that resurrection. Uh, that we have the benefit of hindsight after Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, they had a vague notion 
of life after death. You hear this in places like Psalm 16, when David says, for you will not leave my soul among the dead, Sheol, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. There's a a hint, a whisper there of a hope beyond the grave, but nothing like what you and I understand uh, today. The second thing is, the word that Haman uses here in particular is Sheol, which was there literally just the, the word for the grave or the place of the dead. He's not necessarily making a theological point about life after death. That's not even really what he's after. He's talking simply about comparing life in God's presence as opposed to being apart from it. That to be alive is to be with God and to be dead is to be separated from him. And so what he's saying here is, God, if you fail me, if I'm torn from you, what other hope is there? Where else can I turn to experience wonders and goodness and, and, and mercy? If you fail me, If you fail me, where is my hope? This is raw emotion from him. God, don't fail me, because it sure feels like you have. And here in his lament, he turns to accusation. He says, this is from your hand, God. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of despair, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Say la, 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 la. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Notice he attributes what's happening to him to God. You're the one that has done this. You caused my, my friends to shun me. You did this to me. It's your wrath. Now, some of us are like, whoa, there's a lightning bolt coming, dude. Like, why would you? Now, now this is, again, he is honestly telling God how he feels. But also in this accusation, hear his acknowledgement that all things come from God's hand. That there is a sovereign God who is in control of everything in his life. And the important thing to note here is that he is bringing his complaints and his cries to God himself. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why do you cast your soul away from me? Why do you hide your face from me? And if we're honest, we can pretend like we're always just like, yep, yep, everything's good. But with faith, faith is believing what we cannot see. And so necessarily with faith comes times of doubt, times of, of, of questions, hard questions, honest questions, times of wrestling with the Lord. Why are you doing this? Why did you let this happen in my life? Why did you bring this upon me? And what this psalm is teaching us, in, in, in the darkest hour of Haman's life, when he felt nothing but sorrow, he, it still evidences a faith deep down in the recesses of his heart to turn to the Lord for deliverance, to ask God the hard questions. Brothers, sisters, friends, do not be afraid to ask God the hard questions. They're in your heart. Leaving them unasked is not going to help anything. God is not afraid of you questioning him, of him asking you. Take it to him and to simply say, God, I don't get it. I don't know why you're doing this. Why are you doing this to me? And yet I will declare you're the God of my salvation. You are still on the throne. This is what Haman's doing. This is the first lap around to hear his cry. But then we take another lap around and we hear the cry of Jesus. So I remember in the summer of 2011, um, it was a hard one for my mom. She had had a lot going on, uh, a lot going on at work, a lot going on at home. Things were falling apart at the house. Things were somewhat literally falling apart. And there was a straw that came that broke the camel's back. You know how it is when a lot of different hard things are happening at the same time. I always say that those problems don't add, they multiply. And I was at the house 
when she got the call that her, her dad died. Now, honestly, I, I wasn't super close with my grandpa. He, he was from, from Ohio. I had grown up in Alaska. I, I hadn't spent a lot of time with him, but this was my mom's dad, and her heart was broken. And in that moment, all, all that I could do, uh, I, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't take away the pain. I couldn't make him come back. All that I could do was sit there with her and, and hug her and ugly cry with her and pass the tissue to her. All that I could do was enter into the pain with my mom. This is what the word empathy means. There are two parts to the word. It's in and feeling. So we would say literally, it's to step into the feeling of another. Or metaphorically, to walk in, in their shoes. Now, nobody can truly ever walk in the exact experience of somebody else. That's, that's not the point. But it's to be willing to step in. It wasn't just looking from outside and going, I see that you are crying. I see that you are having a hard time, right? Some kind of robot. But it was to consider things from her point of view. And what my mom needed in that moment wasn't the right answer or a solution. It was just my presence. It was just to be with her. Guys, we need to learn how to listen first to just simply understand, not to respond. That's what empathy is. Empathy is listening in order to understand, not to respond. But then you ask, okay, so Haman's, Haman's bringing these things to God. He's crying out to God. How could God understand what Haman's going through? God's never walked that kind of road. He's God, right? It's like Superman. He's never felt anything. Like, God is a spirit. He's all-powerful. He had, he had never had an enemy that he was afraid of or, or could hurt him. He had never been tired. He, he had never been alone, right? I mean, he's, he's the Trinity. He's always got a buddy with him. How, how could God ever walk a mile in Haman's shoes? How could he ever walk a mile in your shoes or my shoes? Well, to empathize with the humans that God made, there was only one solution. And that was for God to become a human himself. And that's exactly what he did. That over, over the course of church history, this psalm that we're reading today, Psalm 88, this psalm of lament, of a cry, it, it was read on Good Friday. It was read in, in view of Jesus crying out these words of Haman. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Your wrath lays heavy upon me. And Hebrews 4 has this to say about Jesus becoming a man and what, what this affected he said, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, step into our feeling, with our weakness, it says, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Do you hear what he's saying? That Jesus has the ability, as having been a human himself, to not just say, I see that you are hurting. I'm sorry that you're sorrowful. I'm sorry that you're, you're in your sin and shame. That Jesus stepped into our world, became like us. Jesus, as a human, knows what pain feels like. He stubbed his toe just like you have. That, that, Jesus, that Jesus went through the, the awkward phases of junior high, just like the rest of us. Jesus went through puberty, right? Weird to imagine God with acne, but it happened. Jesus got hot. He, Jesus got cold. He, he got hungry. He saw loved ones in his life die. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was attacked by the lies of Satan. 
Jesus walked that road. And Psalm 50, or excuse me, Isaiah 53 paints this picture. In the prophecies of the rescuer to come, there was this idea of this great conquering, uh, dressed in a right, white robe on a white horse type of a king. But there was also this simultaneous picture in the Old Testament of a king, not just a conquering king and rescuer, but of a suffering servant. And the way that Isaiah 53 describes him is this. He says he was despised and rejected. He was called a man of sorrows that he was acquainted with deepest grief. But we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. And we see a man who became well acquainted with walking in sorrow, walking in grief, just like us. Take this back to Psalm 88, when Haman says, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. He felt God's wrath upon him, and didn't Jesus, as as he was on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin. And in that moment, the father turned his face away, that he was abandoned and forsaken. He felt the wrath of God on all sin for all time on him in that moment. So when you and I, we feel abandoned by God, we can know that Jesus knows the feeling. He knows the feeling of loneliness. Verse 8, it says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. That his friends... Saw him as a freak show, kept their distance from him, rejected him. And we know Jesus walked that road too, right? One of his closest friends kissed him on the cheek to sell him off for 30 pieces of silver. Another one of his closest friends denied that he even knew Jesus in his deepest moment. That his disciples all ran away. That his own family over time kind of distanced themselves from Jesus, even mocked Jesus. And that his very flesh and blood, the nation of Israel, were the very ones who cried out to God for Jesus' murder. But like Haman, even in the midst of the betrayal, the abandonment, the pain, the suffering, there came a cry. And Jesus very similar to the words of Haman in Psalm 88, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? The cool thing is, he echoes, you think about verse 1, when Haman says, Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And there, what happened at high noon when the sun would shine the brightest, darkness came over the land. And simultaneously, at day and night, Jesus cried out to his God, placed his life into the hands of God so that the one on the cross crying out to the God of his salvation could become the God of ours. Amen. Jesus came. He did come to save us from our troubles and our death and our sin. But he didn't just do it by staying up in heaven where it was nice and warm and shouting down instructions to us. Just try a little bit harder. What did he do? Jesus stepped into our world We didn't need information. We needed someone to take on our sorrows, someone to take on our sin and our shame and our death, and that's what Jesus did. Isaiah 53 goes on, yet it was our our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. He was not hanging on the cross for his own sins. He was a man who knew no sin. But It says in verse 5, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. What a, what a savior. That the cry of Haman, Jesus entered into the world of Haman, cried out like Haman, cried out with Haman, despair, 
so that ultimately Haman could cry out with Jesus a cry of victory. And so can you and I. That Jesus was abandoned by God so that we could be made one with God through Jesus. And his pain became our healing. His sorrow became our joy. That Jesus didn't just save us so that we could get get to go to heaven when we die. Jesus saved us, took on our sorrow and our sin so that he could become one with us that we could become his friend forever, true union with Jesus. And he can look at us when we hurt today, this week, this month, this year, and he doesn't just say, hey, man, that stinks. I'm sorry from some Superman place up high in the sky that Jesus can truly say, I hear you, I see you, I know how it feels, I understand, and I'm here with you today, and I'm here with you forever. It's the cry of Jesus. Our final lap around is to look at the cry of our own hearts, We've heard Haman's cry. We've seen the way that that pointed to the cry of Christ ultimately. But then we ask as we land the plane that would God show us our own hearts, what we do with this. So the first thing, three principles and we'll be done. The first one is our lament. What do we do with our lament? Well, you know the song as a kid. Hide it under a bushel. No. Very good. Very good. No, don't hide the, the, the pain and the sorrow, but cry to him. We are not called to pretend like life is a fairy tale when we very well know that it's not. Psalm 88 teaches us to come, not as we should be, but as we are. Snot bubbles, mascara running down our face. Come as we are, not as we should be. Not a, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for the food, amen. It is, It's crying out from the depths of our hearts in despair. You know, the Holy Spirit can use poetry like Psalm 88 to help us experience what the author is experiencing. Maybe today you're not in the pit of despair, but Haman was. And as we take some time, here's my best advice when you read a psalm like this, is take time with it. To meditate on it, to slow down, get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, whatever you drink, and spend some time with the psalm, reading it, and thinking about it, putting, step into, empathize with Haman. Empathize into his word. Hear his doubts. Hear his fears. He, hear the abandonment that he feels from God. Not just, well, he's always there, Haman. Just get with the theological program, right? But it's to understand his anger. To under, understand where he's at. And then from there, we can begin to reflect on our own life. And how we may identify with that experience, with those feelings. And here's what happens. As we sit in the pit with Haman in Psalm 88, it helps us not only draw our own cry to God, but it also helps us know how to love those in our lives who are in the pit. Which, which takes us to the, the second principle of others lament. Others lament. Here, here's what I would say. Don't just immediately try to fix it. But get in the pit and sit there with them. I don't know about you, but it's, it's weirdly comforting to, to read a psalm like Psalm 88. And, and to see that there's just not an easy silver lining, a, a neat little bow at the end of it. And, and I think it's, it's encouraging to hear that someone else has had a similar experience to what we have. And not in like a, hey, hey, he's miserable too, right? Like drag him down with me. But it's this idea of, man, I'm not alone. I'm, I'm not the only one who's walked through these kind of paths. And so as we consider that, we, we think about how we would come along other people. We have a tendency to want to wanna try to fix someone's problem right away. And, and I think that can come from a good intention, right? We don't like seeing them hurting, and we want to try to stop the hurt. But oftentimes, that does more harm than good. So when I, when I saw my mom in the depth of her sorrow when her dad died, if I just came around her, kind of patted her on the back and said, hey, just let go and let God, Mom. He's using all things for good. 
That's a great way to get punched by your mother. Right? <laughs> now, is that, is that, did I say anything false? No. And listen, the truth sets us free. There is a truth there. But there's a time and a place. There's a context for the truth. And in that moment, all that that does is it feels like some trite uh, just bumper sticker I slapped on a gaping wound. And that just makes the salt feel that much more stingy. Don't give unasked advice. We need to learn what scripture says, how to just weep with those who weep. And I just want to say a word of encouragement. Maybe you've felt tongue-tied before as you've come alongside someone who's grieving, and you didn't know what to say. There's been times where I've said something, and I'm like, you moron, you should have just been quiet, right? Or times when I was quiet, and I felt like, in hindsight, oh, I should have said something there. Or I say the wrong thing, I say a stupid thing, right? I just want to say that there is grace for the speaker, and there is grace for the hearer. That God is always working in spite of us, not because of us. And, and that really, just get in the pit with that person, and, and God will use you, right? God will use you. It's okay. We're not going to always nail it. And then finally, our hope. Our hope. The last principle. The, the hope that we have is not in a sorrow-free life, a life that never has pain or troubles. Our hope is in a God who knows our sorrow. I, I love the way Derek Kidner says it. He says, Psalm 88 is a witness to the possibility of unrelieved suffering as a believer's earthly lot. It points us to the possibility that some of the things in our lives, some of the troubles that we have, will not see relief this side of glory. That we may have a chronic pain issue that will not go away until we get our resurrected body. There might be a severed relationship that, that we never get mended back again, and, and maybe not even on the other side of glory, depending on the eternal state of the people involved. And so we need to know that when we are in those pits, when we're not experiencing relief, that's not necessarily a sign that God is dissatisfied with us. It's not necessarily a sign that God is not there or that he's unable to fix it. There's a hope here. There is a seed of hope that I see sprouting from the, the desert wasteland of Psalm 88, but we need to know where to look for the hope. And to quote another brother, I love what Paul David Tripp said. He said, if your idea of hope lies in experiencing pleasure, like right now here on earth, just, just, just in experiencing pleasure, or living in ideal circumstances where everything goes the way we want it to go, and always being able to figure out life's problems, then yeah, there is no hope in Psalm 88. If we're just looking in our, to hope to be, everything's just going to kind of work out like we want it to. But our hope, listen, our hope is not found in escaping the sorrows of this fallen world. We live in a world. Jesus said, you want to follow me, you will have trouble in this world. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. The creation groans, as we read earlier in Psalm 8. But the hope is that we can come to understand our sorrow, bring our sorrow to the feet of the one who meets us in our sorrow, does not abandon us in our sorrow, has not left us to deal with our own sorrow, but took it on himself, that entered into our pain and sorrow and sin and suffering with us. Our pain, listen, is not a punishment from God, and it's not, it doesn't throw a curveball in God's plans for our lives. We need to sing these songs that don't always have a cute little bow on them because the true experience of our lives in this fallen world is that we don't always see a cute little bow on it. And so as we sit in the pit with Haman, we, we learn how to empathize with the Hamans in our life, those in, around us that are going through that sorrow and pain. And how, when we find ourselves in that pit ourselves, how to process it with our God, the God of our salvation, how to take it to him, how to worship him from the pit. My word of encouragement to you this morning is don't give up. 
That we see a Haman here who is, who is sorrowful, but he is not without hope. We see a Haman who cries to his God, but he does not end his own life. My prayer is that our sorrowful groans would be indicators and reminders that we are waiting on the God who has come. We read Romans 8 earlier. He says, we groan with suffering. All creation groans with suffering. But he says, this momentary, this momentary suffering, you cannot even compare or weigh with the eternal weight of glory that is to come. See, there is, there is a truth that there is really a happily ever after ultimately available for us. But only for those who cry out to the one who cried out for them. That there, there will be major scenes in the life of our, if our life was a movie, we would have the, the major scenes of pain and sorrow and loss. But we take heart that we do know how the story ultimately ends. So when we find ourselves lost in the woods, when we, find, when we feel the knock on death's door, when it feels like we've bitten into the poisonous apple, that we know that there is a fairy tale sense in which our prince is coming back for us. And that we, and it's not a fairy tale that that king can raise the dead. Amen? Cinderella's not true. I'm sorry for any of you that spoiler, that kind of wrecks your day. But Jesus did conquer sin and death. How? By taking it on for us. And, and, and not just that there's a hope one day, but that he is in the pit here with us right now. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not walk it alone. But there is one who sustains us. There is one who will get uh, through. That's what Jude says, right? He promises that he will be able to keep us from falling. And so we can have a hope and even a joy in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sorrow, and in the midst of the suffering. Let's wait and worship in the pit. Would you pray with me? Father God, we acknowledge today there are some who I'm sure have come in this, this morning feeling the cry of Haman, who feel the depths of despair. Father, we don't have any easy answers for why it's happening. And Lord, we know that's not even the call. First and foremost, we just want to be here today. We are your people, the hot mess that we are. Snot bubbles and running mascara. We come to you sinful, shameful, sad, broken, hurt. And you invite us to come as we are. Because you rescue those who come to you. If you did not call us to first fix ourselves up and then you'll let us come to you. We thank you that you did not require a way for us to come to you, but that you came to us into our sorrow, into our pain and suffering. God, that my brothers and sisters and friends that are hurting this morning would let their cry and the hard, honest questions resound to your ears, that you are listening and to declare the truth even when they don't feel it or believe it. Lord, that we would be a people that would enter into the pit with each other, to love each other where we're at and to empathize, to step into one another's feelings, and to weep with each other as we weep, and rejoice with each other as we rejoice. We thank you for a Jesus who has been given to us, coming to us, so that we never have to be abandoned. We might feel what Haman's feeling, but does not line up with the reality of what we have in Christ. Father, it's in his beautiful name that we cry out to you. All God's people said, amen.